Well, thank you, Nate, for your testimony. Um, we know that we all face difficulties in life, and we are to endure, and that is what I would like to speak to you about it today. About a few weeks ago, the, um, the Shins and the Hans went to see a movie, went to see Tom Cruise's Last Samurai, and then if you, those of you seen the movie, he refers to, as the last battle he goes into, they're going to all die, and talks about the Battle of Thermopylae, where Battle of Thermopylae actually occurred in 480 BC. The Persian army was advancing against the Greeks, and with one million troops strong, they advanced. Their purpose was to invade Greece and take it over. As a threat mounted, the choice stood before the Grecians, and on one hand, they could acquiesce and give up their land and save lives. But on the other hand, they have to face a one million man army and an overwhelming military odds. They had a choice to resist or give up, give up all future hopes for future generations for the Grecians. But the gateway to Sparta was through Thermopylae, and everyone knew it. And the people, the Grecians got together and they resolved to resist the Persian army there. The interesting thing about it was, is on the narrow gate, they would, the million men would march through. There was 300 men, 300 Grecians defending this land. And it's overwhelming odds. They decided to fight. And they knew every single man, every 300, every single man, their death was imminent. The advanced scouts were sent out and the Persian army started launching volleys of arrows. And they said it covered the sky, it eclipsed the sun. There's so many arrows just firing at them. And the, the captain of the Spartan army said, his, his response was, well, today we get to fight in the shade. That was his response. They faced the reality and they went on to fight this battle. The lines formed. They knew they were going to die. The Persians repeatedly pleaded with them to lay down their weapons, but the Spartan leaders would not give up. The battle raged for seven days. Seven days. And obviously, every single man, three, all 300 men died after seven days. But they, the Persians lost 20,000 men with 300. That's, that's a ratio of about 1 to 66, 66.67. But battle more importantly, the Spartans decided to resist. Their decision to resist was crucial even in this loss because later on this would have an effect on Western civilization, this battle. Because later on, after all the Spartans died in Thermopylae, they were inspired by their fellow countrymen. In the battle, the Grecians soundly defeated the Persian navy, turning back their, the juggernaut of the offensive and turned them back and ultimately won the war. You know, Spartans strategically counted the cost. They would endure the short-term defeat because they had long-term gain, victory. At that time, it was a cultural victory for them. You know, and what can we glean from this? This story tells us of many things. As Christians, we live on. We are here as Christians to finish the race. We're not here to run a sprint and done. We're here to finish the race, to endure 
all suffering at all costs, perhaps even death. But we are to wage war against ourselves, against sin, remembering two things, as Paul says. Paul says, remember Christ. Remember whom you serve. And number two, is for the sake of the elect. Paul says his ministry goes on for the gospel because of the elect. Now historically, at this time, the persecution, the suffering and enduring is much different than what we endure. Ours is much more minuscule. It's incomparable to what Timothy and Paul suffered because they were suffering. Paul was in prison for his faith. And Paul and Timothy, they faced possible death because of their faith. In July 19th, 64 AD, the Rome, we know this story, the Rome began to burn. Now much of Rome was built, the commoners lived in wood shacks. So when it started to burn, it really burned. Nero was glowing at his vision of Rome burning because he wanted to build, rebuild Rome on his terms, the way he wanted. And his plot was to blame this on the Christians. They say he stood near the tower with the glee in his heart, watched the city burn. You know, many historians attest to the fact that Nero planned this. He planned to lay the blame on the Christians. So, from Timothy, Timothy's perspective, not only has he has this political, social pressures that he has to do, endure, he has a church to deal with. As a young man leading a church, there's probably a very low point in his ministry life, spiritual life. Politically, things were difficult. And as a young man, he probably has to deal with many of his own personal sins, his feelings of inadequacies. And this is at the point where Paul writes to his young brother, young son. He was possibly timid, discouraged probably. But Paul encourages by saying, to suffer for the sake of Christ is an honor. And it should be so for you, Timothy. Paul does not give him these, this poor baby mentality, the sympathy, but rather he calls him to endure, calls him to be strong, calls him to strength. He needs to realize the duty that he has before him, the duty he must perform, and to be strong in it. Not just to get the job done, but do it right. Is it a time to be weak, time to be timid? Paul tells Timothy, his younger brother, in chapter 1, do not be ashamed. He's asking him to be bold and courageous. It's not time to back down. You know, I always say this, time to turn up a notch in your ministry. The world turns up the heat, you have to turn it up a notch. So this message in this epistle, this is the last letter Paul writes. Soon after this, he dies at a martyr's death. Before he goes, he reminds his young brother, Timothy, in such ways. He says, God has not given you the spirit of timidity, but power and love and discipline. So it also says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, and the faith, love which are in Christ Jesus. It says, be diligent to present yourself as a proof to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling the word of God. The word of the truth. His two chap- Second Timothy is to give his young brother Timothy 
the strength, encouragement, and the wider purpose. This epistle calls every believer to seek strength and pursue faithfulness in our spiritual service, in our ministry, and remember Christ, why we're doing it. Remember the gospel message. Remember the let. And Pastor James shared with us last four weeks that many modern evangelical churches are weak. They're weak because it's the leaders. Paul does not address anyone else. He addresses directly to the leader, Timothy. Men have become weak, without conviction, very little confrontation in people's lives. Confrontation, in order to be strong in our Christian walk with one another, confrontation is absolutely necessary. Because without confrontation, compromise starts to happen. We have to confront ourselves, and we have to confront one another of sin, or things of ministry, and things of life. Otherwise, we go into the slippery slope of compromising. So in verse 1, Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, one thing I've never understood, people often use this term in Christendom, is that he's a good Christian. She's a good Christian. You know, from a young age, I had no idea what that meant. When I was young, I said, what is a good Christian? I want to be a good Christian. It sounded like a good thing. I think I want to be that. But what does that mean? He's a good Christian. I still don't have any idea. Maybe someone could talk to me afterwards. But I don't know what it means to be a strong Christian. There's pictures of that in the scriptures, right? Our Lord, Christ, was a strong man. Paul was a strong man. Stephen was a strong man. There's pictures of being strong. There are pictures of being good. What is that? There's no good in us. I think that's contradictory. It's a good Christian and an oxymoron, right? There are no good Christians. You know, many, many men of faith, men of God, are called to be strong. You remember Moses when he handled, passed on his baton to Joshua. He says, be strong and very courageous. And David told his son Solomon, be strong and courageous. And this is repeated in the Bible. Being strong is a mandate for a man of God. It's true for every spiritual leader, especially if you're a leader who's handling the word of God, like the elders or your flock leaders. For a spiritual leader, one must be foundationally, firmly planted in the word of God. and must be a good student of the word of God. James talked about that last four weeks, is a man of God devotes himself to the study of the Word. Just because if you're not an elder or a teacher, I think every man should be a firm student of the Word. You know, handling the Word of God is very critical in our lives. You know, in Kazakhstan, James and I had many times to fellowship, lots of time, and he shared with me, coming here on Sundays and speaking to you and unfolding the Word of God the burden is great on him. The expectations are high here, I think. The level of expectation is high. And I told him, how do you think I feel? I come here, like once every you know, two or three months, I come here, the pressure on me. It's the, by far the greatest daunting task I have. It's easy for me to stand in front of people and do micro, uh, Microsoft PowerPoint presentations. Well, you don't have to exposit anything. This is what I know, and these are numbers, and tell people to live with it, right? But... It is a daunting task. But even in that, 
Even in that, we need to be strong as men of God to handle the word because there's two things. There's a difference, one who confides in his own sufficiency and one who confides in the sufficiency of Christ. If you come up here or stand before anyone and unfold the word of God and depend on your own sufficiency, you will fail. You will fail. But one who depends on Christ will succeed. Remember Peter, when he promised Christ that he will never deny him? That was a man at that moment depending on his own sufficiency. Paul had, uh, Peter felt that he had the will to resist that. What did he do? He failed miserably. He became a changed man after that night. You know, this word, be strong, is an imperative. It's a present passive tense, which means to be empowered is the actual um, understanding, which means the source of power, be strong, the source of power is outside, it's external, not within a person, and that makes it clear to us. The source of power is outside, not within us, not within Paul, not within Timothy, but it is within Christ himself. The source of strength is in Christ. And verse 2, same idea continues. And all the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrusted to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's the idea of continuing, uh, continuing process. The gospel message of Christ is passed down from generation to generation to godly men to godly men. The sound doctrine is transmitted through generations that each generation raise up men, faithful men, who will be entrusted with the word and will teach their people of their day. An apostle proclaims this. It has been passed down to the pastors, to pastors, to elders, to elders, to many leaders. The real, it's like a relay race, four by four. The baton keeps getting passed and it cannot be dropped. And that is what Paul is saying to his brother Timothy. Timothy. The baton is in your hands today. My time has come and it won't go too far. You know, there's a Korean saying about wealth and one who is rich. They say, um, wealth of a man does not transfer over two generations. So one, if your grandfather is that wealthy, the, the wealth of that family is probably going to stop with you, likelihood. That's the wisdom behind it. It doesn't transfer. And the Word of God is a very treasure, similarly, but it cannot stop over two generations. It must go on. It must go on. So it's important for us to identify men here. Yes, we talked about the elders and we want to have more elders here. But it's important for our, our job is to identify them, help them to mature, help them to stand before God. These men will carry on the baton for the next generation of cornerstoners to take on and to carry on. In the verse 2 also we use the word entrust. It's, it's a Greek word that means something has been deposited for safekeeping. Usually when it is worth safekeeping, it's valuable. That's Timothy, like every preacher, must guard its pure and integrity of God's word. If the church is going to be strong, the leaders must be strong. The strength of the leaders is built upon the word of God, nowhere else. You know, Timothy was at his low point, but he must go on. In one of the Olympic Games, there was an Equatorian uh, Guinea runner. 
And he was running. And the Olympics, they have world-class runners, right? So these guys run. They're done about two hours, three hours. Men are done. Everybody left. Very few people left. And this man kept on running. Kept on running. It was sort of like the Jamaican bobsledders. You know, they knew they, were gonna, they weren't going to win, but they went there to represent the country. And this man said, why did you keep on running? He finished the race many, many hours after the last man, second to last man crossed the finish line. And he said, my country did not send me to start the race. My country sent me here to finish the race. Christ didn't die for you to start the walk. Christ sacrificed his life so that through the word of God that you may end as a Christian, that you would persevere. That we have, you know, one thing is, it's not option to quit. We have no right to quit. Right? We have no right to quit. It's not up to us. Right? It is the, by the hour, the choosing of Christ, when it ends. This call for every Christian to pass that on, not just for pastors. But you may say, well, I don't know too much. Well, then find somebody who knows less than you and teach them. There's got to be someone. Those of you women, you have your families, you have children. Men, you know, men and women. You have younger brothers and sisters here. Teach them. But be a, a person who is firmly grounded in the Word. Husbands, teach your wives. Mothers, teach your children. Element of being a strong Christian. See, who is one who sees himself or herself, who stands in the Word of God. And that's where the strength lies. That's where the courage lies. You know, Paul uses three metaphors in this text. One is that of a soldier, one then of an athlete, then of a farmer. You know, a soldier, when you paint that picture, is someone who has single mindedness, does not get caught in the welfare of society. Single-minded purpose. A good soldier, he says, good soldier of Jesus Christ, does not get involved in civilian affairs or get distracted. Now, if you notice during the war, you see the United States Marines, they fight in the desert. You know, they have, if you notice, they, have, they have, wear the flag, on, the flag patch on their arm. It's backwards. It's always backwards. Because they always want to signify a flag. When flag blows, when you're moving forward, the flag goes backwards. So they always say, we always advance, never retreat. That's the motto. That signifies them always advancing. So our banner here, clearly, is Christ. And we must continue to advance. We're called not to be just a dutiful soldier, but a good soldier. Not a functioning soldier, but an excellent soldier who, who goes and fights for Medal of Honor. Who does not put himself in a normal environment or entangles himself here, like the text says, the affairs of everyday life. Things of life must be relevant to a good soldier. It's a 24-7 job. You know, you don't want a guy in a desert of Iraq thinking about how clippers are doing here, right? You want that man to do his task. Right. It also says suffer hardship. It means roughing it. Difficult conditions. Damp weather. Treacherous weather. Hot. Poor food. 
difficult sleeping conditions, dirt, filth, inadequate shelter, exhaustion, just overall rough treatment, not being able to take showers or baths for maybe weeks, maybe a month. But he understands his costs. He understands the cost, even if the life may cost him. A soldier, a good soldier, cannot clock out. A good soldier continues to to serve. The orders of the commander must be obeyed. The measure of a soldier is by his fortitude and one who carries out the command of his commander. Secondly, Paul compares to an athlete, one who has determined pursuit, one who contends, wrestles, and struggles. You know, the idea of the struggle here is required by great determination to win. It refers to the effort and preparation. When I was a young man, we had a weight room and had a big sign every day, and I just kind of just always lived by this. It says, and there, there's a big sign that says, the will to win is not as important as will to prepare to win. It's a great thing to have in a weight room. That's where you battle. Because by the time you stand across somebody in a line of scrimmage, you look them in the eye, both of you want to win. But guy who during the summertime off-season who pumped a little bit more weight will probably will win. All right? Christianity is not a spectator sport. In the arena, as we profess Christ, as we die to our sins, that we could gain mastery of ourselves and our, over our compulsions, over our lusts, over our desires. We need to prepare ourselves to fight, to take on the baton and carry it. It requires self-control. It requires certain toughness and certain endurance. You know, characteristic of a great athlete is not only his physical traits, the physically tough, but mentally tough. That's what they say, you know, Tiger Woods is such a good golfer. Because he's out there, not only is he physically endowed, but he's probably mostly mentally tough than anybody else. You know, golf is a game of mental toughness. You know, you have a putt like this far to make, it's all mental. Sometimes I could sit there and miss ten times, but some kid goes up there and can make it easily. It's all mental. Being a strong Christian, a successful athlete, must be mentally tough. What does this mean, and application-wise? It's one who's not easily discouraged. Easily dissuaded by things of life. And discouraged and distracted by the things of life, of his pursuits. And it says we need to compete according to the rules. Where's, where are the rules? Living accordingly to the orthodoxy of Scripture. Obedience is what is required. In 1980, in every year they have Boston Marathon. In 1980, it's almost 23 years ago, I remember this. This woman was awarded, Rosie Ruiz was rewarded the woman's victor. But they had a controversy. They don't remember seeing her. You know, in this big marathon, there are some checkpoints people go through. And some people didn't remember seeing her at certain checkpoints. They wondered. So they questioned and they investigated. And they pretty much concluded this woman, in the middle of the race, jumped out of the race, took the subway, and popped out, finished the race. And 
24 hours later, this, her title was taken from her and awarded to another person. That's a person who's not competing according to the rules. Right? Obviously. We, as we, we compare on our limits, our ground, is the Word of God. We know how we are to compete. We know what the rules are. This battle within ourselves that's difficult. And that leads us to a farmer. Farmer, picture of a farmer is someone who does mundane, routine work day in and day out, right? The picture is someone who is hardworking. I think Tom grew up on a farm. He probably knows. He probably you know, milked a few cows and did things daily in and day out. Sometimes, I bet this time of the year, it's very cold outside. And you get up 5.30 in the morning and go out and do what you need to do. I think the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer, I've never been a farmer, I don't know, but the picture I could paint is someone, the difference between a good farmer and a bad farmer is one who's lazy or one who's diligent. When time comes to plant, he must plant. When time comes to, um, when weeds appear, you need to get rid of the weeds. When the crop matures, you need to harvest it. Consistency is required. Consistency is required. In summation, these metaphors, Paul embellishes on a portrait of Christian living and service. It's a portrayal of singleness of purpose, focus, avoiding distractions. Requisite of endurance, diligence, preparation, and hard work. Paul wanted Timothy to realize these things the value of suffering. So there's a distinction of a strong Christian that we could gain from this. Is, is one who has determination to endure. That's the distinction of a Christian. One who has this determination to endure. All Christians are to suffer and endure. You know, Christ alone is a reason to suffer. You know, motives are always important in life. As Christ suffered the ultimate agony of separation from His Father, we are called to endure. This is not an elective. A disciple of Christ must endure, must be willing, and will to make a personal sacrifice, give up his own comforts. If you are protecting your own self, being a self-preservationist, Christianity is not for you. The word endure means someone who suffers hardship in a company. So with another party, with another person. He's a partaker of affliction. So it's not someone who, what Paul is saying here is, oh, suffer alone, Timothy. Endurance means just being strong by yourself. I could be strong. If you're strong, everybody will be okay. That's not the picture. It's enduring together. Paul is calling Timothy, suffer with me. You know, I said that a long time ago without knowing this passage. A long time ago I said to a brother, suffer with me. And about three months later he left the church. But that's what Paul is saying. Suffer with me. Suffer together. It is call of every Christian to suffer together. So what motivates us to endure? What motivates a Christian to endure? Number one is remember Christ. That's what verse 8 says. Remember Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. Christ is your motivation, number one. 
You know, they say the well-trained memory is the one that forgets everything that's not worth remembering. Remember that. Well-trained memory is one who forgets things that are not worth remembering. So if you have all these garbage in your brain, all these trivial things of life, get rid of it. That's why you have a difficult time having, memorizing verses. You have all too many things in your... It's empty the things. Empty your... You know, what is that? Empty can. Right? Empty bin. Recycle bin. It is sort of letting go of some of our self-interest, our desires to remember Christ. Our worldly ambitions, selfish desires. Our desires, worldly desires, cannot coexist with Christ. Christ desires. Remember that. Our desires cannot, worldly desires cannot coexist with Christ's desires. You know, if we're consumed with life, we'll avoid conflict, we'll avoid confrontation, we'll compromise, as I said in the beginning. The truth will be watered down. We compromise in our lives, our ability to share the gospel will be diminished. What confidence do you have? What confidence will we have if we live with our own self-interest? How can we transmit the Word of God to the next generation. So in remembering Christ, we remember what He had to suffer in doing the cross, separation from His Father. Secondly, what motivates a Christian to endure is for the chosen, for the sake of the elect, for the gospel message to continue on. The point is this, God has chosen the elect to be saved, but God has also given us an incredible privilege to be the human agent to pass on the saving message of the gospel. Now, what do you want with your life? What is your highest goal? Can you think of any higher objective as a Christian to use by God to affect eternal, eternal state of a person? We know, we all know, that the salvation is of God. But the wonderful thing about that is God chooses to use us to be the agent of the gospel message. The great command of the Great Commission is for every believer. Now, what is the enemy of endurance? What is the enemy of endurance? I think it's spiritual maturity. Why is it difficult to endure? Because we lack spiritual maturity. It is due to our spiritual maturity we lose focus. It's due to the lack of spiritual maturity that I focus on myself. The greatest challenge in my life, I confess, all before you, the greatest challenge in my life is shepherd my own heart, to deal with my sins, being discouraged, being able to come day in and day out to serve Christ. That's the greatest challenge. To go to work as a Christian, the greatest challenge. It's difficult just to get my heart ready for that. In order for us to grow, we need to endure, not focusing on ourselves and our self-interests and forego these things for the sake of the elect. That was Paul's view.
that we must consider enduring in the same way because we were chosen before beginning of time. That our Lord sovereignly brought us to Him. The author of our faith is perfecting it, has given us the rest of hope and eternity. And I say, yes, it is the greatest privilege to serve Him and endure all things. So what does it mean to be strong and endure? You know, remember the word endure means to suffer with in company, be partakers of affliction, that we are to suffer together. And this is very essential in the life of the church. It's absolutely necessary in our growth process. It involves one another. We don't endure by ourselves. We endure corporately one another. So you say, you know, Bob, still, what does it mean? That still seems so... 30,000 feet, way up there, lofty. What does it mean to endure? So what is the application? So let me try to give this to you in bite sizes. And this is what I could come up with. Okay. First thing is, when, you, when things get tough, when things in your life, you may lose a job, maybe your relationship with your folks, or your wife, or your family, or anything. It's just difficult. It's hard to endure. Do you shun fellowship? What does it say? We should increase fellowship. Do you clam up? Remember Luke Priola said? Do you clam up? Or do you bounce back without having your ministry suffer? Does your ministry suffer when things are going tough? <laughs> I think you're going to laugh at this one. If a bunch of hobbits and dwarves and elves are willing to fellowship over a ring. How much more so should we fellowship? Or well, it's the true saints of Christ, right? Fellowship when when it's difficult, don't clam up. Find fellowship. Find people to pray for you. Find older brothers and sisters who will counsel you. That they will share the word of God and encourage you. And that's the body of Christ. Another one. What is enduring? Over a long period of time. I thought about this. We're within a week or two weeks of our five-year anniversary, right? You look around. We started out about 30, 35 people. A lot of people aren't with us anymore. I'm sure they're walking in their way and doing their thing. But I always have put some value in consistency. That I view that one of the things that endure, the endurance means is our service over a period of time. A man who is consistent. That our ministry over a period of time should always increase. You look back three years from now, three years ago, and you compare it to now, your ministry should have increased. And your goal three years from now, that your ministry should have increased. That's why we told our men, the flock leaders of today, a year ago, you know, before anything else, Come back. Let's see if you come back next year. And all of them are back. I pray that they would be back for many years to come. That we would minister together. That we would stand fast. Remember Pastor James shouted about the wolves coming? Wolves will come and visit every single one of you. And attack your hearts to be discontent, be discouraged. But you stand fast for one another and for Christ. The increasing ministry is one who endures. And you also 
Another one I throw out there for you is that how many of you are influencing or spurring on more people compared to the past? Is your sphere of influence growing? Are you fellowshipping with the same people you did three years ago? Or less people? Or is it increasing? Both in terms of believers and unbelievers. Or are you sharing the gospel more with unbelievers? Is it growing? Are you practicing hospitality to those saints, to fellow Christians, and also to strangers, as Bible commands? Opening up your home for unbelievers. Opening up your wallet. If you don't have a home, take them out to eat. Your hospitality growing, your service growing in that area, that is enduring. And this last one, um, you know, opposite of enduring, I think it's obviously clear to stop or to give up. You know, I think the marriage is a perfect example of this. You know, giving up and you can't give up in marriage. You know, it's like no crying in baseball type of thing, right? We're to endure together. That we're to practice more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more forgiveness in relationships. There are disagreements, there are difficulties. But you practice kindness, gentleness, forgiveness. Go on, enduring together. And this last one I would say to you, you know, I think this applies to me more than anything else. It applies to me here, and although I have been a Christian for a very long time. It's one of my biggest struggles. Again, again, shepherding my own heart. You know, when someone confronts me at work or someone confronts me, confronts me in ministry, my reaction many times inside, I may not show it, but in turn, sometimes I do show it too, is I get angry. I get bitter. My emo- immediate defensive emotions kick in and my Desire for endurance goes out the door. I want action now and that's my attitude. I want to settle this now. There's no patience or gentleness. And this is obviously a wrong reaction. How do I know this? Practically, I know this because I'm a father of two young children and one more to come in about a week or so. Right? I know this. Well, that's what the young kids do. If things don't go right, they feel uncomfortable, some of them cry and throw a tantrum. Okay? If you want to see this, witness this, go to Toys R Us on Saturday and spend about four hours. Okay? Spend about four hours in the video game section. Or, but most boys do this a lot. Go to the Lego section, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, go to one of those places, wander around for a few hours. You'll see a boy, four or five years old, he wanted something, he had in his mind, for whatever reason, their parents said no. Right? And they get on the floor, screaming loud, boom, all the way out the door. They're kicking and screaming. You know, this is sort of the picture. Remember I said spiritual maturity? It's sort of the picture. If you just kind of fast forward at 20, 30 years, it applies to us. We get, our immediate emotions become angry. You throw up your hand. What are you talking about? You're talking about me? That's the natural reaction. Why? It's due to spiritual maturity. We can't handle it. But 99% of the time, most people as Christians, they come and speak to you in truth and love 
to help you grow. That's what we all want, right? But a lot of times we can't handle it. We can't handle the truth about ourselves. I can't handle it. I have much difficulty with that. Why? Because I have too high a view of myself. Who are you to tell me? If you have, we have that attitude, then maturity cannot take place. Maturity takes a backseat to everything else. Converse, conversely, a mature Christian is one who can accept the situation, endure difficult words, and grow from them. I'll talk a little bit more about it later. Because a judge of your character is not yourself. Remember, judge of an elder is not himself. It's those who around you who affirm you. I just let's two end with two things. I like to speak to the women and the men. You know, to the women. Paul also wrote in chapter one says, I have reminded you since your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I am persuaded now lives in you also. You know, Paul and Timothy, Timothy his spiritual maturity, his spiritual stature, the two women, his grandmother and his mother had greatly to do with him. That's what Paul says. You know, we had a members interview last week and this goes on for all the most, many members interviews. Very few times they say, when, I was, when those of you who came to faith at a younger age, they say very few people say, I came to faith because of my father. But I say the ratio is at least 10 to 1. That they came to faith, or they first heard about the gospel or Christ or the Bible through their mother. But ratio is about 10 to 1, I say. By far, it's lopsided. Your mothers have a great role in the lives of our children. The future, the baton, the men and women who will carry on the baton for the next generation, that's virtue of time. And just virtue of, of your motherhood, you have great influence on them. Titus 2.4, mothers, mature mothers are willing to train and encourage younger mothers. Goes on to them. The younger mothers, younger women in the body. A godly wife, although home is a priority. Priority is her husband and her children. There's no higher calling for a woman than that. But it also caused them to be able to handle the word of God. The Word of God is sufficient. They need to know that. To teach younger mothers to be that. Being hospital, doing good works, service. And there's no greater picture in the Scriptures of a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31, right? Verse 11 says, The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. He shall have no lack or gain. There's a woman whose husband trusts her 100%. You give her three credit cards, no problem. Right? She handles her money well. In verse 23, it says, He's known at the gates when he sits among the elders. His reputation is because of her. Because of her. In verse 13, she works diligently with her hands, willingly with her hands. The working in the home is our joy. She produces things for her family and her the servants. In verse 15, she rises while at night and gives food to her household. And portion to our means. She cares about the family's comforts. She takes care of that. In verse 16, she sees a field. That's a good bargain. She buys a field, purchases it, grows it, then sells it. She's not the main breadwinner. But she understands how to manage her resources, financial resources. She's a good steward. 
It says in verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. That means her future is bright. That she is clothed by her strength and honor. You know, I can't help. This, as for this Proverbs 31 woman, I can't help but the, notice the similarities that Paul picks, depicts in a soldier, in an athlete, in a farmer. I think that's basically what is described in Proverbs 31 pertains to women. You know, this postmodern world is absolutely critical for godly women to stand strong, to endure. There are many, many temptations to conform and be discontent with the situation where some women are out there becoming, you know, CEO of HP, right? They're having the world at her hands, taking over compact. You know, although you may not be men or preach the word, but your impact on the church in the future generation, as your relationship with your family, your husband and your children and younger women, it's immeasurable. As baton is passed down to Timothy from Paul, the women of this generation has a great responsibility to carry the word of God as well. To fulfill it, to fulfill it with your roles as women, upholding the word of God. And to influence people around you, your neighborhood people who come in contact with you. Many of your mothers are young. Your children will go to school. There are many people there that you could influence just by your actions. I say, regardless of circumstances, I pray, it is my prayer as your leader, that the beauty of the women at Cornerstone be the strength you display through the submissiveness to your father or your husband, upholding the word of God by your quiet, diligent ministry to your family and the younger women of this church, that to the generation of women here, to be godly women in this world, I say the baton is in your hands. That is my prayer, that your beauty may be found and your strength in carrying out your roles. To the men of this church, you know, men ought to have goals. What is your goal? Is it climbing the corporate ladder, making more money, Get a better car. Go on nice vacations. Nice house. Own a nice house. Get new furniture in the living room. Get high definition plasma screen. What is it? What are your objectives in life? You know, take it from someone who's been working in the working field in the career for 15, 16 years. You know, it's not worth it if it's your position, what sits on your business card or your salary level, seeking certain achievements. You know, sometimes when you reach these goals, the only thing that brings is sort of relief. The only thing that brings is sort of relief. There is no satisfaction in what we attain through life. You may win the Super Bowl, then what? You get paid for it, then what? You know, they say once a person gets to annual salary, gross salary of about $60,000 a year, it's pretty much the same. After that, it's how you spend it, how you live it. It's not about money. You know, in my life, just my personal sharing with you, you know, I try to do, be excellent in my job, do the best I can for my company in their best interest. 
But fulfillment from life doesn't come from my job. Only thing that it does is that it helps my ministry, my family. Otherwise, going to work every day is very empty. Now, some of you know, I had surgery about a year and a half ago. I was lying there, couldn't breathe on my own. I had a tube down my throat for a week. I didn't think about one time, say, oh, I want to go back to work. <laughs> Never once. Oh, I want to go back to work. I sit on my desk and work on my computer. That did pass through my mind. Nor did I say, oh, I want to go play golf. Maybe for a split second. <laughs> more, more, than, more than going back to work and sit on my desk. You know, two, two things I want to see. I want to see. I want to see my family again. I want to get back to my ministry. I want to preach again. Because I knew that if I could come here and stand before you, then I'd be okay. I didn't want to do anything else. I told my wife, I'll go shoot, sell shoes if I had to. If it supports my ministry, that's fine. I thank God that I'm able to use my job to support my ministry and my family. And whatever God calls me to. The ultimate satisfaction, I think, in my life that I see is that ultimate satisfaction is being used by God. There's no higher objective. To be an instrument for, God, for the gospel, for the elect. You know, they say George Whitfield preached 18,000 sermons over 34 years of ministry. You know, that's an average of 529 sermons per year. There's only 52 weeks in a year. That's about 10 sermons a week. And he was um, scorned upon. He was criticized. But one man paid a tribute to Whitfield by saying, he loved the world that, he hated, that, hated, him, that hated him. The tears that dropped upon the Bible was sincere. Assailed by many scandals, tongues of strife, his only answer was blameless life. It said we don't have to defend ourselves. Whitfield didn't have to defend ourselves. His life spoke. People said whatever about him. He said his life spoke for itself. You know, we, fall into, we could easily fall into the world and the sin that belongs to it. The trap of self-confidence and pride. The trap of living in the past and our past accomplishments. This is your blameless life, being beyond reproach, that's important for you men. That's absolutely critical for you. You know, being, being diligent student of the Word, one who makes a priority to obey, is a practically a good listener, listens to other godly older men, because they are enduring with you. If you aspire to be a leader, elder, or a teacher, or more, listen to those who are more mature in faith. I'm not saying that because I'm older. I don't have, you don't have to listen to me. Listen to other older men. Because they have your best interest at heart. If you protect your self-interest and not listen, then you have no room for improvement. It is a great area of pride. You know, they say, I met a gentleman who works with professional athletes and in their mental side of the game. Says, you know, those great athletes who excel, NFL athletes who excel, are those who sit in film sessions. And you know, one thing about football is they study films all the time. Okay? And all your little moves, all your mistakes, it's like 
me being taped in a sermon and everybody going through their word, every word you're saying. In football, that's what they do. They go over film. Those of you who played it knows. Every single bad move you make, that's about every does, everybody does in, a, in a, a course of a game and it gets criticized. But they say one who excels becomes superstars and one who have great abilities. We've seen athletes with great abilities become so-so NFL players. They said one who could accept criticism and receives it as raw data to improve upon, and the lesser so athlete just deny it. They say, I'm a great athlete. I don't have to pay attention to you. You call those people what? Uncoachable. I believe Timothy was a coachable man. This is what Paul was coaching him. Men, listen to those who have gone before you, who are older to you, and listen to wise counsel. That is also enduring together. Sometimes it may be harsh, but there will be time. They will encourage you as well. Men, to be strong is to endure, is to live a blameless life. People may say things about us, but if you have blameless life, that will stand. We, we do not need to defend ourselves. Let our lives be a living testimony of our faith that has been granted by Jesus Christ. I pray that God will be honored to the strength and endurance of men of Cornerstone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for the example of Paul and Timothy. We thank you for the apostles' encouragement and instruction to us that we are to endure as a, like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. As we remember our Lord Jesus Christ, our motivation to serve, motivation to honor the Word of God and for the elect, for the ministry of the Gospel, that we would be in strong enough and mature enough to endure hardships and suffer what we need to suffer for the sake of the message. May we be strong in this church men and women who will endure for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.